Well, I have to say um, thank you to Jake and Len, um, because now I have no opening material. So, yes, it's cold outside. Uh, if you guys remember this time last week, it was, what, like 65 degrees, no coats. And, yeah, it's daylight savings time. Who here, by show of hands, likes daylight savings time? Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, let me ask you this. Hold on. Keep up your hands. Who likes daylight savings time in the fall? Yeah. <laughs> Amen, right? Gain an hour of sleep. But then it's tempered by today when it's taken away from us, when it's ripped from us. Gone. So, so yeah, like Jake said, I'm Josh Raines. Um, I'm uh, one of the elders here uh, at the church. Um, and I've really been looking forward to, uh, to this morning. Um, I have to say, though, when I saw um, the sermon lineup for the Acts series and I saw that I was following uh, Sean and then Paul Honeycutt, I was a little nervous. I was a little nervous, but, um, you know, as I dug into um, the topic in Scripture, um, you know, God alleviated me of that nervousness uh, because it is His Word that we proclaim. Amen. Amen. Um, and when it comes to scripture, admittedly, I'm a little bit of a nerd. So anyone who's ever spent any time with me uh, knows that things that commonly come out of my mouth are like, hey, I just read this cool book. Um, or, you know. I know this is so bad. When you talk about nervous, can I do this? I'm being serious. You are so close to that. Thank one. you, Len. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing I don't move around a whole lot up here and I kind of stay put. Um, but, Len, thank you. Um, I actually, when I was down there worshiping, I imagined myself, I'm like, man, I really hope I don't fall backwards. So, good looking out, Len. One of the things I really love, though, about Scripture um, is kind of how the biblical story interacts with uh, the ancient Near Eastern culture that it was a part of. Um, but we're not going to talk about that today. Okay, I see, like, eye, eyelids starting to get kind of droopy. But Scripture tells this really big story, um, and it tells it through the eyes and the lens of the biblical authors. It tells the story of the unfolding of human history. And right now... We're journeying through the book of Acts, which unfolds alongside verifiable world history, right? And I stole that from the handout, all right? So don't tell Sean, don't tell Jamie Cotting, all right? So there might be some copyright infringement. But if you have your handout, all right, open up your handout, and one of the things in the handout is this timeline, all right? If you don't have it, I think behind me, excellent, yeah, behind me there's, uh, there's this timeline. And where we're at right now uh, is coming out of that blue bar, all right? Uh, this blue bar during the time that Saul was uh, converted and started following Jesus, um, in this time where the church starts to expand and blow up in and around Jerusalem and uh, Judea. Uh, and we're moving into the green part of the bar, all right? This is the part where the church starts to get bigger and bigger and starts to brush up against things that it's not used to, people it's not used to. And what I really, really love about the way Luke records the events in the book of Acts, um, as well as his gospel account, is the energy and movement that you get, especially with the book of Acts. I sometimes wonder when I read Acts, if the account of his gospel in the book of Acts happened today, 
if Luke would be a documentary filmmaker, right? He'd make a documentary or a docu-series, and we could watch it and stream it on Netflix. All right? But it shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that, um, that his story would be so captivating, right? Because all of us, deep down, as one of my favorite authors, Jamie Smith, says, we are storied creatures. He also calls us liturgical animals, which is probably one of my favorite phrases. But we're storied creatures, right? It's how we relate to others the way that we experience the world and life around us. And we're all pretty familiar with this, right? When we get together with family and friends, what do we do? We sit around and we tell stories. Stories are captivating to our imagination. And there's nothing like a good story, right? Everyone loves a good story. And I'm not just talking about a good book, right? It could be a well-made television series, a well-made movie, but it captivates us. And what is it about a good story, right? What is it about a good story that pulls us in? Well, for some of us, it's a good cliffhanger, right? The story ends, and you and whoever else you're watching or reading with it is left to wonder, what on earth happens next? Why did it end like this? I can tell you that my family and I, when we end a good series on a cliffhanger, we will go on for days talking about why did it end this way? What's going to happen next in the next season? And for some of us, it's really frustrating because we know that after we've invested like six to eight hours of a series in like a week or a weekend, let's be honest, right? All right, this is the streaming age. It's an entire year before we get to find out what happens next. And then you have to go back and watch the entire series all over again, only to find out that, or hope, sorry, only to hope that the opening line of the next season is, previously on. Some of us just love the way that a story's told, right? Some of us love the author's use of language, their sense of humor, right? Some of my favorite books are the Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate events books. I mean, the sense of humor, I wish that book was, that book series around when I was a kid. It could be how they build entire worlds with just word and imagination, it could be how they weave multiple storylines together and the scope of the story being told. But for me, the thing that gets me is the exhilarating, punch in the gut, turn your universe upside down and inside out plot twist. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You get led down a path you have your entire, this entire world that's built up in your imagination only to find out that in one fell swoop, boom, you are flat on your back and in pain because the momentum of the plot and the gravity of truth have landed you hard on your imaginative rear end. And there are some great plot twists in the world of storytelling, in the history of storytelling, especially cinematic storytelling, right? I think some of them I don't even need to name, but I'll name a couple. The Sixth Sense, right? The moment you find out that Dr. Crow, 
played by Bruce Willis, has been dead the entire time, and he's a ghost. And then I think most of us here can finish this sentence, all right? Luke, I am right? Great plot twist. And it's here in Acts with a huge plot twist where we pick up today. The message today is the last message in a mini-series of three messages in our Acts movement that looks at how the gospel brushes up against social differences as the reach of the good news goes from the community of Jewish Jesus followers in Jerusalem in the region of Judea and stretches out to the end of the earth. A couple of weeks ago, Sean got us started looking at how the gospel interacted with those local Jewish people and those who look like us but are different. And then Paul Honeycutt last week left us in Acts at a point where the early church begins to see that maybe the gospel is bigger than they realized. And today we're going to pick up in Acts 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 11. And we're going to start in verse 18. All right? And if you remember, if you've been reading through Acts, this comes at the tail of uh, Luke recording this interaction that Peter has uh, with, with some Jewish followers that were very critical of the fact that he was eating and spending time with uncircumcised people. And he has this vision, and he explains this vision to them about, no, why this is a good thing. He tells them they have the same Holy Spirit that we do. And it picks up here. It says, when they, all right, the, the leadership in Jerusalem heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Luke goes on to say, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and, had a, great, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, actually up to Jerusalem. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire world. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now skip over to 1225. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, that we just mentioned, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Siren, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, this is your word. Lord, we thank you that we have this. We thank, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Scripture and the Holy Spirit. During this few minutes, let your name be glorified. For you, the only one deserving of praise and honor. Amen. So one of the most well-known writers of the 20th century is a guy by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien. Is there anyone here who doesn't know that name? Perfect. Tolkien was very famous uh, in his well-known writings for using a type of plot twist called the eucatastrophe. Has anyone heard that term before, eucatastrophe? Excellent. Um, E-U means true or good. So what Tolkien was talking about was the good catastrophe. And he wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories, which I know sounds a little strange, but if you get a chance, I would encourage you to read it. Um, By the end, you will be in tears. It is a wonderful, wonderful work of his. But he describes in in On Fairy Stories that the good catastrophe is the sudden, joyous turn. He says, it is a sudden and miraculous grace. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Now, going back a little bit in the Acts story to chapter 8, we see chapter 8 of Acts open with this vivid picture of universal final defeat, or what could be for the early church. The Pharisee Saul, who becomes Paul, has just overseen the killing of Stephen after he boldly proclaimed publicly Jesus the Messiah. And then he proceeds to systematically hunt down all of the Jesus followers in Jerusalem and throw them in jail. And all except the apostles, um, all except the apostles scatter to the areas of Judea and Samaria outside of Jerusalem. But we find in Scripture that some of them actually traveled to regions even farther outside of that. Now, there's something else in your handout. There's a map, right? In verse 20, Luke tells us that there were some people from Cyprus, which, if you look at your map, is an island north by northwest of where Jerusalem is. So it would have been a nice, goodness, probably weeks-long boat ride to get there after a long walk. And then there are some from Cyrene, which, if you look, is way far west of Jerusalem, over where modern-day Libya is. But these are the places where the church was scattered to. And we find that some of them began to tell the Greeks, the uncircumcised, about the good news of Jesus. And one of the places where 
they start telling people about this is in a place called Antioch. Antioch is north of Jerusalem in modern-day Syria. Now what's more is Luke says that God's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And even greater still is that the church in Jerusalem hears about it and they don't put the kibosh on it. They don't squash it. They actually send a guy named Barnabas to go check it out to see what's going on. And he gets there and he sees and recognizes that God's grace is at work. His grace is at work in people that look different, talk different. And then he goes to find Saul and they set up camp back in Antioch and they spend a year there teaching people about the good news of Jesus. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wow, Josh, thank you so much for elaborating on things that we can read about. What's your point? What a great question. You see, up until this point, we've been reading about the fact that the main audience of the good news of Jesus has been primarily Jewish. They are people who are Torah observant, people familiar to the early church. Much of the tension in the story at this point has been the fact that Messiah Jesus was being taught in and around the temple, synagogues in the area, and the Jewish leadership did not like that, right? But what we brush up against now is the Holy Spirit revealing to the early church that the good news of Jesus is for them, but it is not exclusively to them. Let me say that again. What they find, what's revealed to them is that the good news of Jesus isn't just for them, or is for them, but it's not exclusively to them. In fact, a little later in the story, we see some Pharisees who start following Jesus, who start making these declarations that, hey, all of these, uh, all of these non-Jewish Jesus followers, they need to get circumcised and they need to start following the law of Moses. And after some debate, they realize, nope, this probably isn't a good idea. So they write this letter saying, hey, listen, um, we're sorry about the trouble, um, but there's a few things we would like you to do. Here's the list of things, okay? And it would do really well for you to do these. Farewell. Very simple letter. I love the way it ends. Farewell. But it really shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us, right? It shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that this is how God is working through his people. I mean, think about it. We are here this morning on Sunday, March 13th in the cold, 2022, 2,000 years or so after the events that Luke records in Acts, in Wadsworth with other churches, other families of Jesus around the city and around the state, proclaiming Jesus as Lord because the Holy Spirit revealed that the good news of Jesus wasn't just, was for them, it was not exclusively to them. The Holy Spirit revealed that the message of repentance that leads to eternal life is even for the Gentiles. I mean, it blows my mind 2,000 years later, here we are. And I'm convinced that the gospel went out beyond Judea and Samaria because it, is always, it was always meant to be that way. It was always going to. 
It's been God's plan since he ordered creation to see his kingdom spread to the ends of the earth, to see the way that he wants things done, his beauty, his order, and his abundance to be shared by everyone. Don't believe me? Go back to Genesis chapter 12. God calls a guy by the name of Abram out of the land of his fathers, which, by the way, Abram was a Babylonian. He came from Ur, all right? But he calls Abram out, and he says, leave everything behind, and he makes a promise to him. He says, I'm going to make your name great, and all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is Genesis 12, and this is Acts 11 through 12. This is a huge portion of Scripture that centers around, a huge portion of the story that centered around one man and his descendants who will eventually become the nation of Israel. It doesn't leave a lot of the biblical story left. It's almost kind of like this five minutes in the fourth quarter miracle. We see this sudden joyous turn in the story. Now I want to draw your attention to something else that you may have noticed on the map. It's a little different from the map that you have in your handout. And what it is, is you probably noticed that some of the names of the towns in one of the regions is in red, right? So I'll call your attention back to the end of Acts 12 and into 13, where Saul and Barnabas returned to Antioch. They were just in Jerusalem taking a gift there. And they come back to Antioch, and they're worshiping, they're fasting, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit chooses them to take the good news of Jesus to people who don't look like them, don't talk like them, don't even believe in the same God as them. And what follows from there in Acts, we start to see Luke record Paul and some of his traveling companions, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, as they journey around the larger Roman world. We see him as he encounters people in places like Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica. He begins to cultivate a deep bond and friendship and affection for the people of these regions, for the people of the churches in this area. And what I think is really cool is that we actually have some of that recorded for us. See, about half of the New Testament, about 13 or so of the 27 books, they were actually written by Paul. They're a record of this deep relationship that he has with the people who don't look like them, who don't talk like them. And what's even cooler 
is that those letters were written during the events that Luke records in the book of Acts. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Luke's recording Paul journeying around to these people. And what we see is Paul's interaction. And here I want to start to transition a little bit. All right. Enough of me, you know, yammering on about this timeline. But I want to make this transition to Paul's correspondence. I want to point out a couple of things from a couple of the letters that he wrote, I think that can highlight something for us. Because one of the questions we have in our minds when we talk about the gospel going out, the gospel engaging people who don't look like us, who seem far away from us, even though physically they might be near, the question is, what does it look like? What does this mean for us? Because think about it. We live in the 21st century. We have seen great technological advances in our time. It gives us a broad reach, and whether we like it or not, we are inhabitants of a global community. I mean, think about it. Even though we live here, events that are happening in Eastern Europe have had an impact on our lives, which is far different from how things would have been 2,000 years ago. Information quite literally anymore travels at the speed of light, which is a far cry from traveling at the speed of feet in the first century on Roman roads. The community we inhabit, it's pluralistic, it's complex, it undergoes rapid change, it can seem very fractured and disorienting. Over the last two years, how many of us woke up on a regular basis feeling this sense of disorientation. We live in a time where we have or hear about increasing income inequality, growing political division, racial tension. I mean, I would honestly submit to all of you this morning that you don't have to go very far anymore to find somebody who doesn't look like you who doesn't talk like you, who doesn't believe the same things that you believe. I mean, it pains me to even say, you could probably maybe even look around your church family and say that I might be able to find that person here. So to be able to open up scripture and have Paul's engagement with people that don't look like him, that don't talk like him, it's a gift. And it's a gift because his letters are two things. His letters are prescriptive for us. And what that means is that even for our time in a 21st century Western context, they still matter. They're still instructive to us. See, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, Paul has left us with a deep understanding of God's vision for the world in light of the resurrection of Jesus and what it looks like to live that out. But they're also descriptive. Because what they do for us is they show us how Paul and the early community of Christians, of Jesus followers, are trying to process what it means to follow Jesus as a Roman Corinthian, as a Roman Ephesian, 
Colossian. It gives us an example of what it looks like to ask God for wisdom when the good news begins to splash up against the lives of those who are socially and culturally different, regardless of how far away they are. See, even though Paul didn't write his letters to us, these letters are still for us. Now, it's 13 books out of 27, so obviously I don't have time to cross-examine every single book, all right? And I'm not going to give away any spoilers. So some of them are really short. All of them are really great. I would recommend reading them from start to finish at one fell swoop. It just, just saying, that's me. But here's what I will say. I will say that all of us need to sit down and dig into these. We need to engage this stuff prayerfully with the Holy Spirit and with others, especially others who don't look like us. And this is important because when we do this, we find the good news of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit begins to upend social differences. And it actually begins to bring unity, which was and is God's will. And Paul articulates this perfectly in a couple of his letters. The first one is Ephesians. You don't have to turn there. But this is from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this to the church and churches in and around Ephesus. He says, With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery, the open secret of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on, and on earth under Christ. And then to the Galatian church, or churches, he writes this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Maybe we can add, for our context, a couple other categories in there. Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male-female, Democrat, Republican, vaccinated, unvaccinated, the things that seek to divide us, to rip apart unity in Jesus. I had an interaction a couple of years ago with a patient of mine, um, and it will forever leave an indelible mark on me. It was quick, it was short, but it was poignant. I was sitting with this patient, it was around the time of the last election, and he said, you know, Josh, I'm really glad that you're a Christian because I know where you stand on things. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I didn't know what to say. And I sat there for a second, kind of stunned and reeling, thinking about what am I going to say to this? 
do I walk into this? What do I do with this? And I said, you know what? I said, you're right. And this, this is a gift from God. This was totally grace because I could not have made this up. I said, you know what? You're right. You do know where we stand on things. We both believe that Jesus is king and that he is risen. You see, the gospel levels the playing field because it doesn't give any preferential treatment to any particular group of people. And even more basic, the good news of Jesus can shatter social differences because it can free us from the bonds of our sinful nature. What that means is that, remember, we have inherited a baseline way of operating that does a very good job of seeing somebody else as other, and the other is almost always less than. It does a good job of seeing them in opposition to us. And that does not bring unity. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. Reading Rainbow, anybody? If you go back to Genesis again, what you find in the opening chapters is that God lays out for humanity what it looks like to partner with him. And then what you see is Adam and Eve decide to operate according to their own desires. And what's the outcome? Division, separation. Adam and Eve are hiding from each other and from God. They begin blame shifting. They even pass it on to their children, Cain and Abel. And they just perpetuate this cycle, even to bloodshed. Now, as we kind of close up, you may think to yourself, you may leave here this morning going, you know what, that's all great, but Josh, you know, you you didn't teach me how to engage people who are dot, 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 fill in the blank. These people and that people whatever you would consider maybe that other is in your mind. Now, hear me out. I am not in any way trying to make anyone feel bad or slander anyone to say that you still don't have a Christ-like love for them. But I will say you're right. I kind of didn't. But I also kind of did. Because again, if we go and read Paul's interactions with the people he engaged with everywhere and read his letters, we see how he relies on the Holy Spirit to engage them, how he relies on the wisdom of God to navigate those interactions. Particularly those people that he was called to bring the good news of the gospel to, the people that didn't look like him, we see how he works that out with them and with the Holy Spirit. See, Paul didn't write these letters in a vacuum. He didn't do it by himself. And we're called to the same. We are called to work this out with others and with the Holy Spirit. And I've chosen very intentionally not to dwell upon and attempt to dissect the complexity of the differences that divide us. You know why? Because my undergraduate degree is biology. It's not political science. I don't have advanced degrees in sociology. I know where my shortcomings are. I cannot stand up here and do justice at all 
to talking about things like racism and economics, politics. But I don't know that that was my job this morning either. You know, Paul wrote in one of his letters to this church in a place called Philippi, which is one of my favorite letters. He wrote to them, um, and some of the spirit of this letter is having the mindset of Christ. And the way we interact with others have that mindset. Jesus didn't use his status as bargaining. He came as a servant. And Paul finishes off this letter by saying, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put them into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And that's what I want to leave us with today. That's where I want to leave us. Because the story of the Bible, this gripping narrative, it ends with a plot twist. It ends with a joyous turn. Because at the end of the story, what we see is what this all means. We see God's space and our space reunited the way it was meant to be. And what we see, what John records for us in his vision, is this multi-ethnic gathering. They're not concerned about their differences. They don't recognize that. What they are doing is they are flowing in to the presence of God. Their lives are centered on one thing, and that is Jesus Messiah. And that is our hope. Amen? That is our ultimate hope. One day, the stain of our sinful nature will be gone forever. We will know everlasting peace. We will walk by the light of his presence. And for some of you here today, some of you who are joining us online, Maybe you have experienced the hurt that comes with division. Maybe you have experienced and been turned away from Jesus because of that. But what I want to tell you is that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the story of redemption through Jesus. Our prayer is that you would consider the good news of Jesus and the hope of eternal life. And that even your story might have a joyous turn in it. Let's pray. Jesus, your name is the only name worthy of praise. Jesus, your death and resurrection have conquered the grave and it is working to bring unity to all things in the heavens and on the earth. 
Lord, we thank you that we get to be a part of that story. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to understand what it looks like to engage with those who don't look like us, those who don't talk like us, those who don't believe like us, to love them and see them the way that you do, to be a light for them, and ultimately, Lord, to bring glory to your name. It's in your name, the name above every name that we pray. Amen.